gospel as we give our attention to the reading of God's word from John 2 and John 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother's brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, before us is your holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word, the very means by which you speak to your children today, the very means by which you behold your glory among the nations today. So open our eyes to behold wonderful things from it. Bless our pastor as he preaches to us. Give him unction and liberty, freedom in his speech to declare your truth that we may hear it and we, we may receive it by the work and the presence of that spirit who dwells within us. This we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. Good morning. Great to open God's Word with you again this morning and come back to this theme of glory. Remember, we're talking about that. We saw uh, a couple weeks ago that when the birth of Jesus is announced, the angels appear in the heavens. Heard that reading this morning. Glory to God in the highest is the first thing that they say. And so we're just sort of stopping there and saying, what does that mean? You know, what, what is glory? How do we prop the door of our hearts open a little, as it were, and, and allow some of the ideas and teachings and uh, just the wonder of glory fill our hearts this Advent season, since it seems to be wrapped up, or at least an appropriate word to talk about with the birth of Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we talked about glory as it pertains to God, uh, us being separate from the glory of God, uh, he being so different than we are on the one hand, 
the veiling that we have in terms of our ability to see, but also our ability to reflect. We're, we struggle, we wrestle with, with sin and all sorts of things that separate us from the glory of God. So the glory is veiled to a certain degree. Then last week, Bryant reminded us that it's in Jesus that we see the radiance of the Father's glory, uh, as the writer to Hebrews said. Or when Jesus comes, John 1, he displays the glory of God. And, and so there it is that uh, we, we find or we get in touch again with the glory of God. And this is why the angels sing, glory to God in the highest. You know, when Jesus is born, it's, this is our sort of return to glory. This is our touch point to glory. Today I want to take it a step further and say not only is Jesus the touch point, but the glory that he unleashes in this world and uh, henceforth in our lives as well as we submit ourselves and surrender to him is, is something that is worth marveling at. It's something that is, is worthy of our worship as we come together today. So that's where we're going, and in order to get us to this point, I want to visit these two stories, uh, the, the story of the raising of Lazarus and then the story of the wedding feast at Canaan. And, and I think you, you noted in our readings today that both stories connect with the idea of glory. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified to it. Or in chapter 2, it said, uh, this is the first of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and it manifested his glory. I think there's two different ways in which glory comes into our lives that we can observe through these stories. Now, there may be more, uh, but these two, I think, are worth stopping and looking at. And the first is this. When we look at uh, John chapter 11, and we see the glory uh, that is happening in and around this story, we see that the unleashing of glory in this world comes with what I'm calling a fresh animation. Uh, it, it revives the dead. It brings back uh, to life that which has fallen to decay. So this story here, John chapter 11, if you have your Bibles open, you're welcome to, to look at it. But let me just remind you of a couple of the things that happen. Uh, Lazarus was a friend of, uh, of uh, Jesus's, and he was a brother to Mary and Martha. They hosted Jesus on various occasions. We, we know these things from the gospel accounts. Uh, Lazarus became sick. And uh, the sisters immediately sent to Jesus, text, email, I'm not exactly sure, uh, but they got the word to him, your friend Lazarus is sick. And Jesus said, okay, I'll be right there. No, he did not. Uh, Jesus waited. Uh, he waited so long that they received word that Lazarus had died. And they still took a couple of days to, to get to Bethany. Now, these uh, women, the, the sisters, in the midst of their pain, uh, came out to Jesus and really expressed some remarkable faith. I mean, they said in the midst of their sorrow, if you had been here, our brother would still be alive. I mean, they, they really believed that Jesus had a power to him that could have saved their brother. Uh, but we learn some things about Jesus and glory here uh, because we learn, first of all, that, that Jesus hates 
the, the death, the decay, the destruction that sin has brought into this world. Uh, we see it pretty clearly in that passage, verse 33, uh, verse 38, uh, where it talks about Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit. Verse 33, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly, greatly troubled. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. So as he comes up to this fact uh, of his friend Lazarus being, die, er, being dead, having died, he said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This, this, is, this is broken. This grieves me as the creator, the one through whom all things were created, the one by whom all things holds together. Uh, this is not the way it's supposed to be. The, the language there is very strong. Uh, there is uh, there, there's a deep, deep troubling, a visceral troubling that is happening within Jesus as he encounters this brokenness. And then secondly, it makes him sad. Uh, 11.35, Jesus wept. I, I know many of you know that verse. You, you went to it as a kid when you needed to memorize a verse. You know, two words, shortest verse in the Bible. But it's so profound. You know, the fact that Jesus was standing here you know, moments before he was going to raise him from the dead. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what was happening. He knew what was happening before, you know, days before it even happened. But yet, the, the brokenness that, that so grieved him and troubled him, he allowed it to, to, to show the sorrow in his life and, and his sorrow to come out. And one of the great things that, that we love about the Christian faith is that it is so... Uh, humanizing. It's not just something that's spiritual up there, out there, somewhere. It deals with, you know, real life stuff, the brokenness, the infirmities that we face, the emotions that we feel. Uh, this is one of the things that is really unique about Christianity and, and unique about our Savior. Uh, one of the things that we see, he, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, we, we can't, you know, go the way of the Christological heresies that says he only seemed like a human. Uh, that, that's not who he was. He became flesh. He felt what we feel. He experienced what we experience. But it's into this that he unleashes the glory. It's into this that he, he calls Lazarus, come forth. And the dead got up. And came out of the tomb. The dead got up and walked out, wrapped still in his grave clothes. And, and Jesus says, unbind him. What he says to the, the women earlier, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And this is the first thing that we note. When glory is unleashed... It brings fresh animation to all of the things that we struggle with. And we struggle with a lot. It culminates in death, like the person of Lazarus. But we just start listing it off. Cancer, uh, cerebral palsy, muscular dystrophy, macular degeneration, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, uh, the harm that we do to other people physically, wars, rumors in war, of wars. 
You know, we see the damage that we do to creation, the blight on the trees, the pollution in the rivers, you know, all of these different things. There is a brokenness to this world that Jesus looks at and says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And my glory is that I am going to restore that at the deepest level. So death is the ultimate for us as, as a physical being. You know, death is the end of it. And Jesus says, I'm going to start there, and we're going to work backwards. We're going to work backwards from that. I am unleashing my glory exactly in the place where you thought the glory of God couldn't reach. The place where you thought was beyond the pale. But here is where the glory of God comes and it affects us in, in such deep and profound ways. Now, you say, but pastor, uh, I, I still feel all those things or some of those things. I, I'm struggling with depression. Uh, you know, my, my, my daughter is struggling with uh, a disease that is hurting her. Uh, my grandchild. Uh, is dealing with something that is so horrible and so awful. Awful. Does, does this mean that this is not true? Does this mean that the, the glory hasn't, hasn't come? Well, we do live in the in-between time, right? Some of you know this phrase, the already but the not yet. Uh, and and this, is, this is where we live. We, we live in the fact that Jesus has conquered death. We're going to talk more about that as we go. Uh, that is finished, that it's over, but that we are still living into that. We're still growing into the time when Jesus will come again, not the first advent, but now the second advent. You know, when he will come again and, and all of these things that, that we struggle with on this side of the grave will be uh, made whole again. Part of the challenge is to see that. I love Johnny Erickson Tata's, you know, I love her too. I've never really met her, but uh, uh, I presume that. Uh, uh, but she, she is a person that just rings with such authenticity. Um, she, many of you know her story. She was paralyzed as a, as a young girl with a spinal cord injury. She's paralyzed from the neck down. Um, really wrestled with her faith. Uh, had to come to grips with the fact that God didn't leave her uh, and, and that God still held her. In fact, one of the things that she says is God hasn't healed me, but he holds me, uh, which is just uh, there's a lot of real wisdom and truth and pathos in that statement. But she she has clear sight. I mean, she can really see. Uh, this already but not yet. Listen to, to what she says about the glory of God revealed in the redemption of our physical bodies. He's chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. And I can hardly believe uh, my relationship with him. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscle, gnarled knees, no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful, dazzling. Can you imagine, she says, the hope that this gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope that this gives someone who is manic depressive, 
There is no other religion, no other philosophy that promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. It is only the gospel. It's only the glory of Christ. Only here do hurting people find such incredible hope. When we come to John chapter 11 and we come to the unleashing of the glory in the story of Lazarus, we are reminded that Jesus rose from the tomb bodily. And he is now seated at the right hand of God physically. Uh, And that means that his glory affects, you know, this world at its deepest point of need, uh, the point of death and decay. Secondly, not only uh, does Jesus' glory bring fresh animation to this world, but it also brings a familial welcome. Now, to understand this, we need to go to John 2. And, uh, and we're going to have to do a little work here. I don't know, some of you know the story of, of John 2, Jesus, uh, you know, miracle of the, at the wedding feast, turning uh, roughly 150 gallons of water into wine. Uh, so, nice trick, right? But why did Jesus do this for his first miracle? Like, I think if I had been his strategist, I would have said something like, Maybe you should start with a resurrection. Start with Lazarus, and then we'll go, and then you'll have a real audience. Did anybody else ever think like that? Like, well, this, this would have been a, a better strategy. You really get the attention. But he turns water into wine. Here you've got a couple teenagers probably getting married. Uh, there's some shame. There's some embarrassment with regards to this because weddings were a big deal. Uh, the community would come together. People would party for several days, and... Normally the wine holds out. You see from the story that you start with the best wine, and then when people don't notice it as much, you go to the worst wine. Uh, But they get to a point, and the the wine was giving out. And so Jesus' mother, who, you know, maybe is some relation to this couple or whatever, they're all connected in those, you know, smaller villages, uh, they comes to him and says, can you do something about this wine? And Jesus responds kind of harshly to her. He says, woman, uh, why do you bother me about this? My hour has not yet come. Now, I I don't think we need to read a really strong rebuke into this, but there is an ordering of of reality here that I think Jesus shares uh, with his mother and with us as well. You know, as she was coming to him, he, he was just reminding her, that he, he had a, a, a story that he was living out that was more than just simply the story of being Jesus, Mary's son. There was a, a bigger picture to this. And part of that story was to be the Messiah. Now, one of the reasons why we don't connect with this particular story as being very strategic for a first miracle is that we are not as uh, inundated with the Old Testament scriptures as the Jews were. The Jews knew the Tanakh, the Torah, the Navi, the prophets, and the Ketavim, the writings. They they knew this inside and out. And they knew that when the Messiah came, what would happen? The mountains would drip with sweet wine. 
This is what the prophet Joel says in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, You shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never pass again through it. And in that day, that day, the day when the Messiah comes, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and the water, the valley of Shittim. And then in Isaiah 25, 6-9, the, the passage that we read for our declaration of forgiveness, this is what it says about that day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food, full of marrow, of, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all their faces, the reproach of his people. He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And when Jesus made 150 gallons of the best wine ever flow, he was saying in large neon letters, I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one that your hearts have longed for. I am the one who not only heals all of the physical problems in this world, but I am the one that deals with all of this relational stuff that gets in the way, all of the reproach and shame that is in your heart. Do you notice that? Isaiah 25, I, I love the picture that the prophets give us of, of what the kingdom is like. You know, there is not only a healing from the physical, but it's the relational. You're welcome. You know, there are no strangers, Joel chapter 3 said. You, you come in and it's like, hey, well met, good to see you. That's so glad that you are here. Uh, mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and neighbors, we, we come in and we sit down together. There is a well-apportioned banquet hall. The tables are filled with stuff and we are invited in to come and to share and to be welcomed by the master of the feast. He knows us. He has swallowed up our shame. He has taken away our reproach. It is, it is such a beautiful picture of the glory of God uh, revealed, not just simply that he overcomes death, but he overcomes the relational distress that we have with God. He's taken away our shame. He's taken away our reproach. And we are known as sons and daughters. We are known as those who belong at this table that is so laden with all the bounties uh, that God has in store for us. It's such a beautiful picture and such a needed picture. I was reminded of that uh, earlier this week. I was talking with a friend and um, doesn't live here in this. So you have to try to figure out who it is. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> but uh, he was telling me, and, and he put it this way, my greatest shame, uh, my greatest disappointment, and my greatest idolatry. Um, he was there, you know, his four-year-old daughter, and he was just paying out on her. Uh, she had done something. She wasn't obeying. 
uh, as children are wont to do. And, and my friend said, I, j I just let her have it. Uh, and he said, you know what's so hard about this is it wasn't the first time that I had done this. I find this to be a pattern in myself, so much so that I sat down with my wife and I said, I don't know if I can be around the children. Uh, some of it had to do with his own upbringing, which is his greatest disappointment. Uh, his father, he says, I, I see myself repeating the same way that my father dealt with me. Uh, and, and even to this day, uh, I cannot be in the same place with my father without him shaming me, paying out on me, showing that type of anger. And, and this is a wound that I, I continue to have. And it was all exacerbated for him uh, as he recently lost his job. Uh, and, and so he found himself in a place of dependency. They actually had to move in with his parents, uh, which, which heightened all of this for a time. Uh, but he said, it also unearthed my greatest idolatry because my work was my God. What I did determined my significance. So all of this is coming together. Here I am paying out on my daughter, which is my greatest shame, dealing with my uh, relationship with my dad, which is my greatest disappointment, realizing just how deep my idols are because I no longer have a job and I no longer have significance and I, I don't even know where God is in all of this. And I said to him, I, you know, my friend, I, I feel you. I've, I've been there. Not exactly like that, but I, I have my own shame, my own idolatry, my own disappointments. Uh, and they come out in, in all sorts of ways. And, I, you know, I've been around enough in, in groups of people and walking with you to know that you all have the same things. Uh, you have your shame, your disappointments, your idolatry. And that's what I love about the picture that we have in Isaiah 25. It's that all of that is taken away. All of that, you know, when, when the glory of God is unleashed into this world, the reproach, the shame, the, the, the disappointments, the idolatry, they are all atoned for. They are swallowed up is the language of Isaiah 25, so that we have a place at the table. Now, how does that happen? You know, if the promise is, we're moving on to the third point now, festal delights, if that's the promise, how is it that Jesus, who is the radiance of the Father's glory, how is it that he achieves for us festal delights? Verse 11 of chapter 2 gives us a hint it's sort of a pun a little bit. Uh, it gives us a hint of how this happens because verse 11 says that this was the first of his signs that Jesus did. So this wasn't just simply a parlor trick that Jesus was doing, changing this water into wine. He was telling us something. He was preaching. He was preaching to us the fact that he is the Messiah. He was preaching to us the fact that, uh, that he was going to do all of these things. But even further than that, he was telling us how it was going to happen. So when Mary comes to Jesus and she says, can you do something about this? He says, woman, why do you 
bring this to me. Don't you know that my hour has not yet come? What's he talking about there? Well, if you do a little word study and you look throughout the book of John at the term hour, whenever Jesus talks about my hour, what is he talking about every time? He's talking about his death. He's talking about the journey that he has to take. He's talking about the cup that he has to drink. You know, as he is there at this wedding feast and, and he is drinking the wine of the feasting, he is contemplating the fact that in order to inaugurate the marriage feast of the Lamb, where we are going, what has been foretold by the prophets, there was going to be another cup that was going to need to be drunk. It was the cup of God's wrath, drunk all the way down to its dregs. It was the cup of suffering, and the wine that needed to be produced was his blood. It was his blood that was going to be the source of the joy that was going to come to all people. These are the things that Jesus was thinking. I mean, part of the reason we know this is what jars does he use for the making of the wine? He uses these great jars that are for the purification of the people. I mean, there are so many things coming into this, so many things that Jesus is saying, this is who I am, and this is what I have come to do, and this is what it's going to cost, and this is the road that I have to take. Jesus knows that it is the pouring out of his blood, the wine of the new covenant, that is the path that he has to take to bring us the glory that that frees our bodies, and the glory that covers our shame. You know, the Lazarus story, too, is a picture. It, it, it's a picture of just the fact that this happens, that he accomplishes it. You know, when you go to Lazarus and, and you look at uh, what is being portrayed there, you have weeping women, you have a tomb, you have a stone, you have somebody who's presumed dead, you have grave clothes. You know, all of those things were pointing forward to the resurrection of Jesus. And this was picked up by at least one person. Mary picks this up. Because right after John 11 is John 12, where Mary goes and anoints Jesus for his burial. And, and he says she has seen what is coming. Uh, but, but we see also the discontinuity because... In this story, you know, somebody had to roll away the stone. Somebody had to call forth Lazarus. Somebody had to unbind him, take off his grave clothes. But in the story of Jesus, the stone is rolled away. Nobody has to bid him to come forth. He comes out of that grave under his own power. And nobody has to unbind him. There the grave clothes are, laying neatly folded, because he is the victor over death. And what we see here is the power of glory unleashed. All of our deepest fears, whether it be our physical fears, death, cancer, schizophrenia, all of these things, or whether it be our relational fears, one with another, or the shame, the reproach that we have in our relationship with God. Jesus says, 
This is what it means. That I came as the radiance of the Father's glory to do the work that I've been called to do. And he has done it. It is finished. So how do we respond? Let me just give you three quick thoughts. Uh, I sometimes think of application in terms of doctrine, duty, and delight. You know, what, what, do we, what do we need to believe? Well, if you do not believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he came to do or that he did what he said he came to do, this is an invitation to, to surrender. Whatever you're believing in, I, I know it's not as comprehensive as what Jesus came to do. Uh, and, and I suggest to you that you will find nowhere else where you will find the free gift of salvation uh, in the way that Jesus brings it to us. Uh, and, and so the question is, what are you living for? You know, what, what is your controlling narrative? What is it? How is it that you're making your decisions? All of this, you know, believe, surrender. It's not just an intellectual belief, but it's the surrender of our hearts and our lives. It, it will bring you more joy, but it will also transform, you know, sort of the main idea is that the, the cosmos, it's the biggest idea I could think of, is transformed, but also our very core of who we are is transformed when we surrender to the glory of Jesus. What do we do? You know, we, we share it. Now, you know, doctrine, duty, what, what is this called for us? Well, if you are a believer today, uh, you are called to radiate the glory of God. I mean, the same ways that, that Jesus brings us glory to you and to me, we are called to, to, like the moon, you know, reflect the sun. We are called to uh, allow that glory to be seen. We're not the sun, but we, we reflect it and we, we allow people to see the glory of God. And that means very physical ways. You know, Jesus came and he healed diseases. Uh, he, he affected people's living situations. When he raised the dead son of the widow, uh, he economically transformed her way of living. And Jesus encourages us. I mean, when we follow Jesus, this means that we really get involved in the physical needs of this world. This is how we show his glory. We say he has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We, we sing it every Christmas. And, <coughs> and we're a part of that. Uh, but we also share it, that, that familial welcome. You know, not just the physical, but you know, come on, you know, opening up our tables uh, for Christmas. You don't have a place to go. I'd love to have, you know, finding the people that, that are alienated, fragmented in this society. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we open the doors of church. It's not just us four and no more. It, it's like, come, this is where the feast is. This is where uh, we, we will find the joy that our, our hearts are longing for. So why do we do a capital campaign? Why do we, we tie into all of this? It's because that's the way of Jesus. He's always opening the hall. And he's always making room for more. Because that's the nature of his heart. And, and we reflect that as well. And then finally, uh, doctrine, duty, and delight. You know, take time to, to worship. To just allow space in our own time and, and place in order to let that glory soak in, 
to who we are. Jesus has come to unleash glory in our lives. Uh, may that be your greatest joy. We, we lit the candle of joy this morning. Uh, and, and joy it is. Because if Jesus had not come into this world, if Jesus had not unleashed his glory, uh, we would not know joy. But he has, and we do. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace. We thank you for the picture of this glory that you have given us uh, in these two stories. Lord, we, we thank you that you were so careful in the way that you lived your life. And, and we pray now that you would help us to continue to live out that story or live into that story. We, we long for the days of Isaiah 25 when not just the first advent but the second advent has come to fruition. And, and we are together with you, our great bridegroom, at the feast, uh, uh, sharing in all of the goodness of that. So Lord, we pray. That, that our hearts would be pregnant with that anticipation, that you would help us to long more and more, uh, to have a holy discomfort for uh, our place and our time, even as we look with the apostle for the coming of, of the Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.